Hello and welcome to Halftime Scholars, the series that features the work of independent and emerging researchers. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Pradyumna Jairam, a teaching fellow at the Department of Politics School of Oriental and African Studies at King's College London. His research examines how the Bharatiya Janata Party constructs a particular narrative of Indian identity centered around Hindu majoritarianism in the school history textbooks of Rajasthan and uncovers how this national ideology is regionalized by the party to satisfy a state-oriented narrative. Welcome Pradyumna to Halftime Scholars. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us how about your PhD work? Actually, maybe before your PhD work, what was your educational background and how did you get to your PhD program? Well, it's, it's a mixture of things. When I finished school, I embarked on a path of studying social sciences. So I did my bachelor's and I did my master's in history. And especially during my master's, I think because the type of history which I was studying, it was quite different from what I was used to uh, before. Even studying history at school and at university, it was from a very, very nation-centric approach. You were studying about the emergence of the Indian nation, the colonization of the Indian nation from by British imperialism and the nationalist movement for freedom. So up till the masters, it was about certain events and certain personalities and certain processes which were taking place. It was really during the masters when history was detached from the nation and it became more about people, especially people on the peripheries of history. So there was a lot of emphasis on oppressed caste histories, a lot of emphasis on women's movements, a lot of emphasis on regional movements for self-assertion, especially linguistic groups in the South and the West and the East of India. And so that's opened up new avenues of understanding history because now because of these contradictions which were taking place, because of these contradictions that were taking place, I began to ask these questions about how does this fit in with the larger nationalist narrative which I was uh, exposed to beforehand. And there was no simple answer because there were different communities who were charting out different ideas of what it meant to belong. And so it became a question about how do we understand history? Is history about national identity? Is it about instilling values of patriotism and nationalism? Or is it about critiquing ideas and institutions uh, of the nation? So that master's degree was very, very important for me in developing a deeper curiosity with history and especially of people who were on the margins of history. Just to give you some examples, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar was one of them. Jyotiba Phule from Maharashtra and Savitri Bhai Phule were very, very prominent people who figured in the readings here. And it opened up newer questions about things which we were accustomed to, about religious conversions, about access to Western education, because we have a very definitive idea of what these things were from a nationalist narrative. But when we study the works by these people, especially, we get different ideas of what it meant to convert, to move away from majoritarian religious. And so that stayed with me. And then, of course, you develop keener interest for reading about these events further and you read about these things further. However, that was the last I ever did history as a discipline because uh, I later went on to pursue uh, an MPhil, which was very different from what I did at the, at the master's level, more on international relations. But in 2012, which was the second year of my MPhil, it was supposed to be the year of thesis writing. And I wanted to do something a lot, a bit more active than just write a thesis. 
thesis because I felt that if I spent one year writing just a thesis, I would not be in the right frame of mind. As you talk to many academics, writing a thesis is mind-numbingly torturous. And so I decided to look for some active things to do. And one of my close friends at the time from my undergraduation in Delhi suggested to me that his school where he was studying, they were looking for history teachers. And which my first reaction was one of a bit taken aback to say that, you know, why would I go back to a school and teach history? And we had numerous conversations about how history is written, how history is taught, how history is viewed by people. And he could see that it was used to wind me up a lot. So this was his way of telling me that this is an opportunity for me to actually take what I believe and try to transmit this into a classroom of young students and, you know, try to teach them history in the way in which I want history to be taught rather than sitting on the sidelines and complaining about whether it be policy or it be textbook writing. This is the first opportunity to go out there and uh, into the field, so to say, interact with. So I took this opportunity up in uh, 2012. And that time it was supposed to be only for a one year assignment while I worked on my thesis. And then the idea was to go back into academia and to do a PhD in what I didn't know. So which is why I think if I needed this year to think about that. And teaching in a school is challenging. It's not like a university where students come in and they voluntarily have chosen some of the courses they want to do and some of the disciplines they want to specialize in. Young people have very, very definitive opinions about what they like and what they don't like, especially those who are between the ages of 12 and 15, where every subject is compulsory. So while some students do like history and would like to study it further, there are others who prefer going into mathematics or science or commerce. So the idea was to develop an interest of to, amongst all students. And this is where I think that academic knowledge counts for naught. And it's your ability to communicate with students, which is very, very important. So this is my grouse with academia, where when academics talk about these larger issues in uh, problems of education and various things, I think we tend to forget that the way in which we are taught in schools is also one of the major problems, because I think academic historians don't understand how to write histories for school-going kids. In, in, I mean, I, I've done, I've interacted with people who've talked about this from different national contexts, but I'm speaking specifically from the Indian context here. And so the challenge became to make history accessible to them, make it interesting to them, but also to make it into a grueling learning exercise because ultimately they have to clear an exam. And so there is an app, there is an emphasis placed on scholarship, there is an emphasis placed on knowledge, excellence, etc. So all of these have to be juggled in. Yes, of course, notwithstanding the fact that students between the ages of 12 and 15 have other issues in life which they are going through. So one must be patient and one must negotiate with those things and keep their frame of mind. I'll just cut to the chase and tell you that I started my PhD in 2016. So there was four years where I had to uh, decide what to do. And at my appraisal interview uh, at the end of my first year, where they thought that I was leaving, I told them that I would like to continue because I'm really enjoying myself here. It's giving me a completely different dimension to the discipline. It's complete, giving me a completely different dimension to how young people engage with and understand and learn about history. So I stayed at this particular school till 2015. So, you know, almost three years, what was supposed to be a one year assignment. That is a testament to them for withstanding me, of course. It's also, I think, a testament to my dedication to teaching, because I think that's where I realized that teaching is something which I want to be in. And I think it's a testament to the students, because I think at the end of the day, it was the students who I taught who made the classroom an atmosphere worth going into. Because as teachers or as human beings, we may have our day-to-day -day issues and our day-to-day -day struggles, but... I think when we step into a classroom, we and students start on a new slate because they are interested in 40 minutes of you trying to 
I wouldn't necessarily say teach them. Of course, you are teaching them and they are learning. But at the same time, you must also be willing to learn with them because students come from different experiences and different contexts as well. Anyway, but uh, between 2015 and 16, I moved to a different school and I taught history from a different board curriculum with a different faculty, with a different set of students. And it was, again, it was a very wonderful experience. I substitute, I complemented all this by helping students with their public speaking skills to make them more confident in what they think. And in September 2016, I finally made the journey into the PhD, which when I picked up my PhD topic at the time, it was largely centered around what I was doing for the last four years, was looking at why are our history textbooks written the way they are written? What purpose do this for the way in which they are written? And who writes these texts? And why do they write them in the way in which they These were the research questions which I found during my quote-unquote fieldwork as a school teacher. And so I came to London in September 2016, never been to London before, and started doing a PhD in, at the time, what I thought would be history, but it turns out it was in politics and education. As I told you before, I haven't studied history as a discipline since 2011 when I finished my master's. But these significant events are very crucial in shaping what I have done in the last four years in writing this particular thesis. So yeah, that's a really interesting journey. And I think it's a good grounding. Always going into the field is a good way to see how the theory and how the real world actually works. So that's a really good way to shape our questions. I feel that a lot of academics need that kind of background and experience as well, because it's totally different. So you, you alluded to some of the research questions you already were exploring. If you just take one step back and you mentioned that you were looking at politics and religion and some history and also the research questions. So actually, if you take a step further, what was the sort of of methodology you adopted? What were you looking at? What sort of methods did you do your research in? And what are some of the questions that you actually grappled with from that experience of teaching, then starting your PhD journey? Yeah, again, I go back to my master's where at the end of in the last semester, we don't really have a dissertation, but we have to write two seminar papers, which are based on some element of primary source research. Uh, one of the papers which I did was on education. It was on the RSS, the Rashtra Swayam Sevak Sangh in India. English translates to Association of Indian Volunteers, the largest non-government organization in the world. It's the sort of ideological mentor of the BJP government in power in India today. And they have very, very strong views on how the history of India ought to be imagined and ought to be represented in not just history textbooks, but in culture, in society as well. And that really fascinated me because it was an organization which was centered around a majoritarian identity. So it's clearly how a majority views. But again, this is related to the organization. So I embarked on that seminar paper to understand what is their ideology or, or their beliefs with regard to education. And I did not look at their textbooks at the time because that would have been more exhaustive. And I don't think I was in that academic space to undertake a textbook discourse analysis. I enjoyed working on that paper a lot got exposed to a wide array of literature on Hindu nationalism from a feminist perspective, from a political perspective, from a historical perspective, which gave me a very, very good, solid theoretical and intellectual grounding into the ideology. Now, getting into the specifics of it, I decided to take what I did and convert these into a set of research questions when I applied for the PhD to look at how the RSS imagines the history of India in textbooks which it prescribes. And some of the research questions were pretty much along the lines of what I had experienced looking at school texts is that who are the people who they prioritize in the remembering of Indian history and subsequently who are the people who are forgotten or represented in a very uh, derogatory or negative manner. So how are the categories of heroes and villains created in history textbooks? Another one was about the prioritization of events 
how is history organized in the hindu rights imagination of history and how is this organization of history represented in which historical events are prioritized so the irony is is that all this is not just the rss but this is also indian historiography in general the irony is is that they claim to be indigenous and they claim to be anti colonial but they borrow largely from colonial <laughs> historiography when they organize indian history into distinct phases to making it very simplistic and so using that framework in mind i said okay let me now look at how is ancient indian history organized by the rss how is medieval indian history organized by the rss and how is modern history organized by the rss and third was down to my masters was that how are communities on the periphery either appropriated or omitted so this came into the representation of dalit uh, movements for self assertion and self respect this came looking at women's movements for self assertion and self respect especially things like the age of consent bills the age of marriage bills and of course access to western education how did people on the hindu right at that time respond to these things and how did they view these people in the telling of history later on so these were the three broad questions which i sort of set out to do that had to be changed for practical reasons so the rss could not be a case study so it was decided that i would take up the bjp as a case study and how does the bjp itself prescribe history textbooks in not the national level because that is an area which has been covered quite in depth in academia so my focus is on specific states of india and in to just to give your viewers some context here the indian system of education is largely decentralized so while there are central government prescribed textbooks states are free to prescribe their own as well so long as they don't deviate too much from the national curriculum frameworks which are prescribed by the ministry for education so i chose the state of rajasthan which is very much in the news at the time because their government there the bjp government was very active in articulating what they wanted is the type of history to be taught a very very regional centric history a very very patriotic sense of history so the same questions which i took for the rss project were transferred into the bjp project it was supposed to be a mixture of textbook discourse analysis and ethnographic fieldwork however the ethnographic fieldwork could not be done because permissions were not given by the states and the schools for whatever reason so uh, it had to become a purely text based uh, study so discourse analysis which is the larger methodology which was used and within these two there were two elements of it the critical discourse analysis of the cda and the discourse historical analysis which is the dha all of these were related to the questions which i had set out to answer over the course of the phd it deals with the periodization of the organization of history in the more theoretical grounding it that translates into where does the nation form where is the nation located in antique processes of omission and nomination involved who is prioritized in the remembering of history and all of this was sort of centered around something called a master narrative which is very crucial when you are forming majoritarian frameworks of belonging master narratives are basically how communities who enjoy power uh, are able to consolidate and represent themselves within the larger ambit of society and within this how are minorities represented and the framework within which all of this was organized was known as the policy cycle which is a very very particular cycle in, in a policy making and education uh, this was modified by me into making it into a textbook cycle which has three particular contexts involved the contexts of influence the context of text production and the context of practice the context of influence is very important because it showcases who are the people who enjoy the ability to influence and to write not just policy but also textbooks this could be bureaucrats it could be government ministers it could be civil society organizations it could be religious organizations it could be quote and quote religious leaders it could be influential teachers it could be in today's day and age public influencers who have many followers so who enjoys that status in society whose voices are heard the loudest in advocating a certain 
ideology. And within this, of course, is the corollary of whose voices are ignored in this regard, which then takes us on to the context of actually producing the text. Now, when you have so many people who are vying for influence, when you have so many people who are vying for authority, the job of the textbook authors is to come to a consensus. Now, what is this consensus? The consensus is what everyone can agree on to be the lowest common denominator of the historical narrative, which then produces the final textbook, which is the result of numerous contestations. The context of practice is, of course, how all of this is implemented in the schools, which was not the ambit of my own study. And so I looked at the influence in the text production to understand what this compromise of the textbook is and whether this compromise does represent the ideology of the BJP at large. So the text discourse analysis dealt with how the history of India is actually Hinduized. And therefore, the title of the thesis, Hinduizing the Idea of India. Is it done through explicit overtures to Hindutva, through direct referencing of the Hindutva ideology, or is it done by more subtle manifestations of omission, decontextualization, vilification, of course. So this was, of course, the steps which I had to undertake before I underwent the process of prescribe, of writing, uh, sorry, of uh, reading the textbooks which were thus prescribed. So yeah, that's quite a comprehensive journey. And I think conducting a critical discourse analysis and having those questions grappled with, it gives you a lot of opportunity for a lot of reading and diving into the text. You mentioned earlier that you had wanted to do uh, some sort of ethnographic part of for your you know, as a part of your research design and you mentioned that they you know for various reasons that they may have not given permissions you find that fairly common something that uh, researchers would normally uh, encounter dealing with sometimes quote-unquote sensitive issues or areas is that something that it's there. It's there. I mean, a lot of people experience it, especially those who go to anthropological work, who go deep into the field to research on peripheral communities. In India, very recently, two anthropologists were not allowed entry into India for reasons weren't given, but clearly their research is not particularly conducive to a national imagination in the eyes of the government. And so researchers do have to grapple with these roadblocks which emerge. In an ideal world, it shouldn't be there because academic knowledge is supposed to be about building new knowledge and bringing in voices from the periphery without speaking for the periphery, That let's be clear, but rather the voice of the periphery is represented in the research itself. But it is a larger problem. It is a problem in many countries where certain things are off limits and certain things cannot be done. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I can draw parallels from the, with the Sri Lankan experience as well. Similar majoritarian leanings and the way history is written, the, the mythology of how the state was formed and, and all that imagination and part idealization of being a majority and having sole ownership. This is the Sri Lankan experience, having sole ownership and sole rights to the land and everyone who is a minority is either an unwelcome guest or a tolerated guest at, as in some occasions. So if we move on from that point, Pradyumana, if you look at that context, what are some of the findings that came out and was there anything that actually surprised you? I think that's the thing. I think because the moment we associate the Hindu right with history writing, there are definitive opinions which are created that it is highly antagonistic towards uh, Muslims, which it of course is. Like, let's, I, I won't deny that I did not see stereotyping in the textbooks. There was a clear preference for Hindu emperors and Hindu kings. Uh, but there were a couple of things which were, well, I mean, they're not really surprising, but the way in which they were represented was quite, I must say, quite impressive in this quest to create a unified idea of history. The first thing is, is the practice of historical omission, where certain events seem to be forgotten. So, for example, the conversions, religious conversions of Ashoka and Dr. Ambedkar to Buddhism are omitted because these clearly mark a fissure with the Hindu 
idea of history uh, where buddhism has taken away two people from the hindu fold which prompts other questions of why did they convert and what did they see in buddhism which they saw as liberating and what wrong did they see in hinduism so that those are obvious questions which come in the other aspect has to do with this homogenization all muslims are brushed under the carpet of being uh, aggressors of being uh, invaders of being motivated by greed to conquer india whereas hindu kings who wanted to conquer territories were seen as emperors were seen as spreading their territorial uh, space you know very uh, proper language being employed here. but the interesting thing was was that in especially during the medieval period during the time of the moguls and mughal historians have talked about this in great detail and i think that again one issue which i think historians of the quote unquote modern and contemporary period ought to be doing is looking very closely at the history of what was india around the time of the uh, 15 to the to at least the 18th century because there were a lot of fissures within those times so for example many muslims were actually loyal to uh, hindu kings especially rana pratap in rajasthan and shivaji they had uh, muslim soldiers in their ranks and it's not like many rajputs were galvanized by this idea of liberating india they were more concerned about their immediate territorial ambitions and they allied themselves with mughal emperor akbar with the very well known policy akbar's rajput policy for example known here so these sort of contradictions need to be understood by uh, historians who claim to be of the modern contemporary period because i think it's unfair to rush to generalizations when we have historians of uh, the mughal the pre mughal and the post mughal period who have invested so much time canvassing the archives to come up with knowledge about how courts were organized about how community identification was not as simplistic as we imagine it to be the concept of the nation state can't really be applied to that particular time of course the way in which it was represented surprised me but in a state like rajasthan it really wouldn't because there's a huge attachment with the rajput community in rajasthan the other thing is the representation of the rajput community itself because on the one hand they they are described as a martial race very loyal very brave but the contradiction can be seen in representing quote unquote anti nationals of history who seem to have allied with the mughals or who seem to have allied with the foreign invasions prior to the advent of islam and the term anti nationals is actually quite visible there called desh drohi in the textbooks but the rajasthan textbooks they very interestingly say that the mughals were able to conquer india because of the bravado of the rajputs because of the the sort of strength of the rajputs now why are we not using the term anti national to describe these rajputs because they have helped quote unquote muslims conquer india at the time and so these questions obviously cannot be answered in a history textbook but it makes for a good narrative it makes for a narrative which says the rajputs are brave people and the mughals couldn't have done it without them but at the same time you're thinking but then why didn't they help the mughals and why didn't they just unite and fight for what was india at the time finally is the sanitization of people who are close to the hindu right because we tend to simplify things quite a bit especially now coming to the modern period and i'm talking about uh, people like vinayak savarkar who has emerged from the ashes as this forgotten nationalist icon in the hindu right not given his due and erased from history and so the hindu right has done a very good job of bringing what i call one of its own into the telling of history because they cannot really ignore mk gandhi they cannot really ignore jawahar lal nehru and subhash chandra bose and bhagat singh and ambedkar 
they have to be brought in. But Savarkar is one of their own. He is Hindutva. He is the man who coins uh, Hindutva. He is the man who gives the ideological message of Hindutva. But how is he brought in? Now, again, the accusation which is leveled by public intellectuals and those who claim to specialize in ideology of the Hindu right is to say that if the BJP comes to power, then it will all be about Hindutva. It will all be about targeting of minorities. But that is not the case in the Rajasthan text. The case is, is that what type of Savarkar is represented? The type of Savarkar is a very biographical which can't be questioned. You can't question when he was born, when he died, who his parents were, and the fact that he did go to jail. So all of these things can't really be debated as such. If you bring in the fact that he wrote mercy petitions, that opens up a can of worms, which of course they're not ready to tackle. The other aspect has to do with this idea of citizenship. Now, the texts do quote Hindutva, but they leave it at precisely the point where Savarkar says that it doesn't really matter what caste you are. It doesn't really matter who you are. You can be a citizen of India. Whereas if you just turn the page, you'll find that he's, he's very open in the idea of who is not included in the, his vision of the of the nation. So it's a very decontextualized Savarkar. It's a very simplified Savarkar who finds a place amongst this pantheon of heroes. And of course, the zenith is reached when they say that Vinayak fought against the partition of India, which again is, it can be debated because he does coin the phrase Hindutva. He does advocate a division of people on the basis of their religious identity. So we can go back to questions about who does coin the two-nation theory. Is it Mr. Jinnah or is something called the two-nation theory already in existence during the 1910s and the 1920s before Mr. Jinnah gives it the academic footnote that we call it today? So that's the Savarkar which is represented here. And it makes her a pretty compelling Savarkar who is a nationalist hero who fights against the division of India, who's advocating for a very secular type of citizenship. And finally, it's the representation of Ambedkar. And of course, Ambedkar's conversion to Buddhism can't be highlighted. Neither can his uh, battles against Hindu orthodoxy and the uh, violent nature of the Hindu faith, which Dalits had to experience on a day-to-day basis. It's forgotten in the text that Ambedkar went to the US and went to England to study. And he became one of the first, he was the first Dalit to receive a PhD in the field. And of course, his uh, Mahar Satyagraha, which was for the right to access uh, clean water and the, and the temple movements are largely ignored because that creates divisions amongst Hinduism because it asks uncomfortable questions about why are people down on their knees when it comes to caste. So caste isn't really answered or you know interrogated. So all of these things are known, but they need to be explored a bit more further as to how they become known in the textbooks. Because when ideologues, when intellectuals write, of course, they write with certain frame of mind, but the textbooks have to cater to young students. So that's why it becomes very important to see these textbooks. And there's a very famous quote, which says these are written by real people with real interests. So what is the real interest here? The real interest is to appropriate people like Ambedkar within the Hindu fold and to make him at par with a guy like Savarkar. And more different they could not be for many reasons. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Uh, maybe if I can ask you this question, that's something that popped into my mind was, so if you go back to your classroom experience and teaching experience, and then you fast forward these findings from your PhD, and also I'll throw this question in there. India is famous uh, for its uh, one of the largest democracies in the world. It's a secular identity from the time we received independence. And the movement away from that towards more uh, religious nationalism. How did you find that in your class? Like, how did the students receive these ideas? And what are some of the things that you felt teaching about it so many years ago, but also now, you know, learning more in depth? How do you reconcile that? Could you just just concisely just repeat that question? Uh, So I guess the question is around the change in this secular identity of India. How do you draw the classroom experience to your 
results that you have received, you know, through your findings. How do you find that transition? How do students receive that? Take back to your classroom days. Is there a change? Is there something different? Well, young people have different sources of history. I'm talking about 2012. So I'm looking at social media, which is just about taking off the televisions. Family history is told by parents, by grandparents is very crucial in terms of forming initial perceptions. So especially in North India, where the partition is, well, not taught, but at least it's remembered in the households quite a bit. And that comes with a lot of baggage. And so classroom teaching was often accompanied by students coming in with experiences of what they were told at home. And many of it was rhetoric. Many of it was, I wouldn't necessarily call it complete information. I would call it half-baked at best and propagandist at worst. But the idea is not to get angry at the student because the student is young. The student is only doing what any young student would do is taking what elders are saying at face value. So the idea becomes to engage with that. If I could give an anecdote where one student who was 14 at the time said that, why is it that acts of terrorism are only committed by one community? And of course, the class became quite outraged. I was very glad to notice that they were outraged. But but the idea was not to gang up on that student because that student had clearly been fed certain narrative. And the idea now was to understand where is this coming from? And, and so you give the student an assignment to ask them, you know, what do you mean by terrorism? And if I give you some terrorist attacks, can you find out who did these? And it's imbibing that sense of research, not shunning that student. So to say in today's day and age, not cancelling that student, because I think that it would be rather unfair if we begin to cancel school students for their views on things. And so at the end of the year, that student had revised their views and said that like I was wrong with them. I said, well, you know, you weren't wrong. You were just misinformed. So you should always take the, don't take any facts as, you know, being the ultimate truth, so to speak. I think he was doing a bachelor's in history when I saw him next. So clearly he wanted to research further. That's the thing, Suran, because like in a school, it's very different because everyone has a different opinion on everything. Everyone has an opinion on the freedom struggle. Everyone has an opinion on history. So the idea becomes to interrogate these things. There are numerous examples here. So for example, students have definitive ideas about everything, like about fundamental rights, about uh, individual people. The idea becomes to engage with them, not to come from a position of spears. Because the worst thing one can do is alienate a group of students just by shutting out the conversation by saying that I know more than you. Which, of course, is true. I mean, you know, you probably know more, but how much can you communicate with that student based on what you know? And so this constitutional idea of India, like this idea of India as a secular democracy, etc. is there. But all of that is a very elite creation, even amongst people who go to city schools. So caste, for example, is something which was never really understood, even for myself, coming from a oppressor caste community. I don't use the word upper and lower because I think that they are artic- they are terms that signify a certain legitimacy of hierarchy. I prefer using oppressor and uh, oppressed. Even coming from an oppressor caste myself, I was never really introduced to caste and in all of its ugliness when I was in school. And I think it was very pertinent to make these students aware about how caste operates on an everyday level. Just saying that you are casteless or you don't believe in caste doesn't make it go away. When Indians come to the quote-unquote first world, they are one of the first people to come out and say, I feel racially abused. But one can easily tell them you shouldn't really see race. But that's not the right way to go about it. So the same thing should also be applied to the notions of caste. And this made for some very, very uncomfortable conversations in the classroom because students were aghast that caste is doing all these things because they had a particular idea that caste is only prevalent in the villages. It's only prevalent on the periphery. 
it's not really prevalent in the big city. But then simple questions like, do you let your household help use the same utensils as you? Do you let your household helps use the same bathroom as you? Prompts some uncomfortable question. Giving projects about atrocities committed against oppressed castes where violence which is unleashed on boys, girls, uh, men and women is shocking. And the first reaction of parents is, why are we exposing these children to such violence? And my response is very simple. They are 14 and 15 years old. They probably watch shows which have some sort of violence in it. Now, I'm not one to police what you should or should not see. But if they are watching these things, then surely they should also be able to read about certain types of violence which happens in their own country. It leads to some conflicts at first, but I think it, your reaction should be how the students approach these things. So they begin to question the idea themselves about concepts which we take for granted, like equality. Is equality actually there? Secularism. Is India actually a secular country? And notions of liberty. Are, does everyone actually get to enjoy the same fundamental rights as everyone else in the country? So that's the excitement, well, not excitement, but it's the sort of unpredictability of school teaching, where you will be thrown off by a simple question about why does this continue to happen today? And I think that, yeah, I think that's where looked at those. And in my own thesis, I sort of delve further into the text. Okay, what is the hidden meaning the text is trying to convey here? How is the text trying to convey this particular meaning here? So I think they are complementary in that. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I think those parallels of the classroom as well as the context and findings are quite interesting. If we move along discussion today, so what do you feel some of the broad practical applicability of some of the work you've done and maybe you're doing at this stage? Well, that's the thing. I think that I, I think because I was out of academia for four years, I'm still trying to get back into the, into the routineness of academia to say, why is my work so important in academia? Well, first and foremost, I think that our imagination of the Hindu right needs to move from a national perspective to a regional perspective, because I think that if we see what electorally and, you know, politically the, especially what the Mr. Modi is doing is that he is trying to embed himself with local cultures and traditions, which is why when you a look at his campaign rallies and speeches, he will always invoke some local custom or some local community where he goes to, especially in a state like UP, which has very big geographical spread. So I think that for me, it's that I hope I have contributed, what is it they say, what is your contribution to the literature? And uh, I think, I hope I've started the ball rolling by starting a regional understanding of how history textbooks are written, because I think that's very important. I think that we tend to get lost in these national level debates about uh, what the Hindu right and the secular versus quote unquote communal. Because I think that both the Congress and the BJP have been guilty of majoritarian narratives of these. It's very, it's just different in terms of who are the people who are prioritized. Otherwise, the concept is pretty much the same thing. I also think that in today's day and age, we need to look at how is the BJP trying to morph itself into the states? Are they using history? Are they using historical events? Because we see a common trend, which is noticing where there's always a need to target an external enemy. There's always a need to target somebody from the outside. So what, how is that being imagined in the intellectual space? I think that's one very important thing which we need to look at. Here. I also think that the conservation, as I said, needs to diversify. I think it needs to incorporate different people now. I think we've exhausted a set of public intellectuals who I, in my personal opinion, have not really contributed to the debate, about, especially about education and the Hindu, right? Of course, there's a lot about the Hindu, right? But I think that in education, there needs to be a new audience, so to speak. And I think that there needs to be a new way of communicating these things. I think the other thing is also within education, we also need to look at people, especially Mr. Modi, in terms of like how he imagines the history of India. Because the Hindu right has perfected the art of tweeting out something and spreading it and making it viral. And I think that we need to look at these 
avenues of political education, how Twitter has become a source of Indian history. What is that called? WhatsApp University. How has it become known as WhatsApp University? What is it that is being circulated in these groups which passes off as Indian history? I think we need to now move there to understand how Indian history is being grossly oversimplified, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, so those are really important considerations and I guess contributions to the field itself. And I believe through your continued work, it's, it'll be ongoing. I guess if we move to the latter half of our discussion today, Pradyumna, so, you know, throughout this research and your practical work, what are some of the things that you do in your spare time? Well, not academic work, because I think it's very important to, it's very important to have a work-life balance, especially in terms of your academic work. And I think that if you let your work define you, it's not really much of a character. I think a person should have different characters in terms of like what they read, what they like to do. And I think that being told about these things by very helpful supervisors really enables you to enjoy other aspects of your of your PhD. So for example, moving to a new city, exploring a new city and, you know, exploring its own history and exploring the cultures and cuisines associated with it become that much more crucial towards detaching yourself from the PhD. I also think that any activities are also important, which is why like every morning I try to get a game of tennis on the weekday, just to set my mind at ease. And of course, reading as well. I think that I try not to restrict myself to one branch or one area of reading. So I also like to read about other countries' histories, like for example, how other countries imagine their histories, because I think that's something which we can learn about, how Germany tells its history of the Holocaust. I think that's one of the lessons which we can learn in the telling of the history of the partition. I think that it's important to come to terms with the past and what has happened and then try to get some closure and move on. So yeah, I think what, to your question about what you like to do is it's a very a mix and match of outdoors, and, but also enjoying the, the indoors whenever the time presents itself. Yes, it's good always to keep a mix and enjoy, have a bit of sport and keep the mind occupied. I guess my final question today is, so you graduated, you finished your thesis about a year ago. As an early career researcher, where is your work at the moment and where do you feel it's heading to next? Well, I hope it heads to a job. But yes, I mean, the struggle is real and I've been doing temporary teaching jobs the last year and I probably will be doing temporary teaching jobs for the coming year as well. But I do envisage... I do see the thrill of having your work being discussed and published by peers, which is why I do have two papers, which I'm currently working on one, which I'm currently working on for sending to a couple of journals, which I hope would pass after the peer review. And so I think that's the step now for early career academics juggle. Well, if they get permanent employment, that's great. But if they don't, then it's to juggle temporary employment, but trying to work up your research portfolio. So having one or two publications, but also having teaching experience really helps because if you have one or the other, it shows that you do have a footing in the discipline. So I made it a point to teach every year during my PhD between 2017 and 2021. And I really enjoyed that time because it's a university crowd, very different from a school crowd. So different challenges. We can have a different podcast about you know, teaching in universities. So, but yeah, I think that for me, I think teaching really, really makes the research come alive and puts the research into perspective because it really does challenge you to think about these theoretical concepts and try to apply them inside a classroom. And I think that's very, very crucial as I move forward. And as we move forward as academics to understand that classroom is there, the classroom may be changing, like the dynamics of the classroom are changing in a post-COVID environment, but the foundation of the classroom remains that students want to learn. And it is our job to make sure that they learn in the best way possible, which means working a little extra to prepare for lectures and seminars and also being empathetic 
and introspective in the sense that students may catch you out and students may feel call you out by saying that they're not enjoying themselves the idea is not to take it personally but to learn from it as we all take supervisors feedback we don't take it personally but we learn from it and i think that we need to apply the same thing when we are inside a classroom so that's a good point and you said as you said your struggle is real i'm also at the point of writing my thesis right now so it's something that is quite a journey but i'd like to wish you all the very best pradyumna and thank you so much for sharing your work so far thank you very much and thank you very much for having me as well and all the best with your writing and i really appreciate the fact that you have come up with this idea of communicating with researchers and putting it out there for other researchers to to think about maybe identify with and maybe even provide some comments hopefully not strolling but critical and positive comments uh, to leave behind and i really do appreciate you asking me to speak about my research so i thank you as well yeah thanks so much That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. Let us know what you think of the show and leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. We'll see you next month on our next episode.